We'll turn once again to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Now, I know we're camping out on this verse for a while as we continue looking at the church's shepherds, but I, I kind of have a secret goal, and that is for your Bibles to start to fall open to this passage automatically as we continue considering how the church of Jesus Christ is to be led. I have a number of heroes of the faith that inspire me. They remind me to stay the course, to stay faithful, to do the work of the Lord no matter what. And and for obvious reasons, almost all of them I cherish most deeply are, are pastors, preachers of the Word of God. I admire Charles Spurgeon for his passion for the lost and the ability he had to communicate the Word of God with clarity and with precision. I respect Tommy Nelson, the senior pastor of Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas. It was under him that I cut my teeth in learning the Word of God. He's relentless in his commitment to expository preaching and has been doing so for over four decades. I get charged up by Steve Lawson for his eloquence, for his constant reminder that preaching is both light and fire and that one without the other is not preaching. I'm awestruck by the great American Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, for the sheer logic of his arguments from Scripture. And although he's not a preacher, I'm indebted to Dr. Jim Roskup for setting an example of forming a precise, precise biblical argument with hermeneutics on an epic scale. He wrote what is, in my opinion, the finest work on the book of Revelation ever written, and it was never published. It was just class notes that he taught from. I look up to the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, for his four decades of surgical precision in the Word, for standing up against seeker-sensitive preaching and against the free grace movement long before almost anyone else was recognizing the error of those movements. And I am, of course, indebted to John MacArthur for being my biggest influence by just the sheer faithfulness to explain and apply the Word of God using sound hermeneutics and never, ever being swayed by public opinion or by fads of the culture. Steve Lawson calls MacArthur the Sultan of Scripture and the Earl of Exposition. I'm indebted to all of those men and to many more, and you should be indebted to them as well because their influence has impacted me, which, Lord willing, impacts you as well. But let me tell you about two lesser-known men who also have had a profound influence on me. One's an accountant and one's a fireman. The accountant, his name is Chris Hamilton. He's a certified public accountant in Los Angeles. He's the owner and president of an accounting firm which ventures into highly specialized areas of of accounting. He's won multiple awards as a professional instructor. He presents classes at national conferences. He's published articles in professional publications. But he's also a longtime lay elder and for many years has served with John MacArthur as the chairman of the eldership at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley. I've learned more from him about eldership from the perspective of a non-vocational elder, a lay elder, than from anyone else ever. In fact, I'll be mentioning Chris in a later message because he has done, in my opinion, the finest analysis of the duties and responsibilities of a lay elder that I've ever seen. And then the fireman, some of you know him. His name is Mike Hilliger. He recently went home to be with the Lord. 
He was a faithful churchman and an elder for decades also at Grace Community Church. He was actually instrumental in bringing me here to Grace Bible Church. As a fireman, Mike was not hesitant in the least. On one occasion, he ran across a burning roof, and just to make matters better, he fell through that burning roof. He was not refined in any sense of the word. Restraint was not a word he usually used. When the moment came to his brain, it came out of his mouth right then. That's just the way he was built. But he was a disciple maker par excellence. He had a profound influence on me. He's had an influence on others right here in our church. Mike read theology the way others read novels. And so he knew his theology extremely well. And he could match wits with anyone on theological topics and issues not to mention having sat under John MacArthur's preaching for about 50 years as a faithful member. He was active in discipleship, active in leadership. You could ask him anything about anything having to do with the church, and he could give you a very long, detailed explanation. He had a tremendous disdain for the view of eldership as a bunch of decision makers. He said, no, they're disciple makers. That's what they ought to be. So Chris and Mike are are men and that have influenced me, and men like them are important because they demonstrate something. They demonstrate that God does, in fact, raise up men who are not vocational, paid shepherds in the church, but who can have a massive influence as disciple-makers and instructors. These are the type of men who make a church tremendously strong, and I'll tell you why. They make a church strong because the church observes that it's not just the so-called professional pastors who set an example. Is godly men who are excellent in their workplace, excellent in their family, excellent in the church. In other words, these are men that all the other men can strive to imitate because they can relate to them a little bit more. Men who then can aspire to leadership. And that brings us to our focus for this morning, 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires... To the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And today I'd like to focus on the aspires part. What does it mean to aspire? This is a word that means to strive for something, to stretch out for something, to reach toward a goal, to attempt to attain something that is important, that is godly. And to help us understand what a man should be doing as he aspires to leadership in the church, I'd like to take us to a useful parallel passage. And that is Hebrews chapter 13. So if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, I'd like to talk about this idea of aspiring. The letter to the Hebrews is a general epistle to Jewish believers, and it likely includes false believers who are hidden within the ranks of the church as well. The severe warning passages in the book of Hebrews indicate this. This doesn't mean that it's Usefulness and authority for us as Gentile believers is somehow negated. It's very, very relevant to us. The book of Hebrews was most likely sent originally to the church in Rome. Chapter 13, verse 24 gives greetings from the Italian Christians who are with the author. More accurately, we would say with the preacher. Because the book of Hebrews is written in a sermonic format. It's likely adapted into a letter, but the frequent interruptions to give exhortations and appeals and and plea pleas for obedience it suggests that it was originally delivered as a special sermon in a church setting now the purpose of the book was to 
counteract the fact that there was a move in the community of Jewish believers and likely among the false converts as well to consider the relative safety of of saying, hey, let's go back to Judaism. Let's go back to the way things were. Why would they consider this? Well, being a Christian at this time was dangerous. There There was much persecution happening. And so many were considering that maybe we could just go under the radar and go back to our regular Judaism, which everyone knows about. This Christianity thing is brand new and being persecuted. And so the preacher who wrote Hebrews is exhorting the readers, if they're not in Christ yet, to come fully to Christ, to come all the way to salvation through faith alone and Christ alone. And he was exhorting the believers, the Christians, to stand firm, to endure, to be steadfast in their faith. And how were they to be steadfast? They were to be steadfast by looking to Christ and to Christ alone. And Hebrews presents to us some of the richest Christology in all of the New Testament that we point to Christ. The point of the letter, the, the really the central focus of the letter is found in the very simple statement of chapter 13, verse 22, which says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. One of the reasons we think it's from a preacher is because preachers always say, in conclusion, and then 20 minutes later, they're done. He says, I've written to you briefly. Hebrews is not brief. It's very long. Thus, we have the evidence for a preacher. To begin chapter 13, the preacher of Hebrews gives a collection of these bullet point staccato applications to living faithfully in Christ. But in the whole chapter, there's two clear references to the leadership of the church. Look at verse 17 with me first. Chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is a seminal statement on church leadership. We'll return to it frequently in the course of our series on the church's shepherds. This verse here is exhorting the church to a proper relationship with her leaders but a lesser-known verse is earlier in the chapter the church that references the church's former leaders, likely those who have died, those who have finished their race in this world. And that's verse 7, Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There are basically three exhortations here. First of all, remember your leaders. Why? specifically because they spoke the word of God. That's the primary duty of an elder, not to be a manager, not to be an administrator, although those things are necessary, but to impart the word of God. And so you remember them. The second exhortation, consider the outcome of their way of life. The reason to examine their lives is very practical. You can see how their lives ended. You can see what the end product was. This gives us the implication here that the leaders we're referring to have been faithful men who have now gone home to heaven. This is, by the way, why we like to read dead authors. We read dead authors because the outcome of their lives can't change. You don't have to go to your bookshelf and pull five books off of it because the guy fell into sin. They can't renounce their faith. They can't end badly. It's a sad, sad thing when a once faithful elder or pastor, rather than improving and growing and becoming a greater leader, falls into life-altering sin or loses his way as a leader and becomes a hindrance to the church instead of a help to the church. But then there's a, a third admonition, a third exhortation here. Imitate their faith. 
In other words, imitate how they live out their faith in Christ. And it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly like Christ, but it's going to be the best example you can find, or it should be. And why is this important? Because we're built to thrive on example. This is one of the reasons we need life-on-life involvement in the church. And so verse 7 is very important for us, but the question we would ask is, what's the relationship of verse 7 to verses 1 through 6? The the commands, the exhortations in the body of Christ. Now, verses 1 through 6 may seem like a random set of exhortations to believers in general, but in the context of Hebrews 13 that mentions leaders in the church twice, it also serves as a means by which, listen carefully, to achieve the imitation of the faith of the leaders gone by. In other words, you want to be like the leaders you're remembering in verse 7? Then do verses 1 through 6, and you become like them. In fact, verses 1 through 6 contain what we could call preparation for qualified leadership in the church. This becomes very apparent to us when we see the clear parallels between verses 1 through 6 and the qualifications of elders given in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. There's a lot of parallels. And so we see it as a preparation. And so let's have the preacher of Hebrews inform us concerning preparation for shepherding. And that's what I'd like to address. And just to be very practical, this passage serves both as a reminder to all those who are shepherding now to re-examine yourselves, myself included, It also serves as a checklist or a preparation guide for potential or future or aspiring shepherds. There's going to be a lot of overlap with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, but my focus today is more on preparing for shepherds and, of course, for shepherding and, of course, for current shepherds to continue their ever-present self-evaluation. Now, once again, and I feel like we have to say this over and over again, Why is this useful to the whole church body? Why not just talk about this in a little seminar for leaders or potential leaders? Well, it helps you because all of these preparations are character qualities which benefit you because they prepare leaders who are then a blessing to the whole church. It also helps you to know what God expects of shepherds. It helps you to assist the shepherds in focusing on these things. It helps you to know how to pray for your shepherds because you know what they're aiming for, what they're shooting for. And so I'd like to give you six ways to prepare for shepherding. Six ways to prepare for shepherding. This isn't comprehensive, but we'll look at what the preacher of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, focused upon. I had to make a decision earlier in the week. There was so much richness in this passage, I didn't feel like I could do all that we needed to hear. And so today we're going to do the first three ways to prepare for shepherding. We'll finish it up next time. But six ways total. Today, we'll do three of them. The first way to prepare for shepherding, we'll call this one intensify your love. Intensify your love. The preacher of Hebrews says in wise fashion in verse 1 of chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Now, what does this imply? Well, it implies that some brotherly love is already happening, but that more needs to happen. I think our English translation has a little bit more a flavor of of a hope and a suggestion, but in Greek, it's an imperative. It's a command. Continue in brotherly love. It is a command. It's something that must be done. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And keep in mind, that's the same church that he said, You're so loving, you don't need anybody to tell you about it. But I'm telling you, do still more. 
Now, what does this mean when the preacher of Hebrews says brotherly love? Well, that's specific to love within the church, love within the brethren. This isn't a generalized love that we have for all Christians at all times in all places. Anyone can claim that. Anyone can say, yeah, I, I love Jonathan Edwards, even though he died a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, I love Moses, and I love Noah, and I love all the church. Anybody can say that. No, this is more specific. This is a brotherly love for the ones with whom we fellowship on a regular basis. Let me put it this way. This is a brotherly and sisterly love for the one who sings a hymn next to you on either side. The ones with whom you serve, the ones with whom you gather every week. And what ultimately is the reason for this love? It is the grace of God in saving us. That's the reason. Listen. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Since you have been born again. It's one long word in Greek and it can be translated having been caused to be born again. What does this mean? It means that our brotherly love isn't based on how likable someone is. It isn't based on how talented they are. It isn't even based on how quickly they're in achieving their sanctification and their Christ-likeness. It's not based on anything about the qualities of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's based on how sinful you were. And the fact that God saved you anyway by his mercy and grace, having caused you to be born again. That's what causes brotherly love. It is a denigration of self which causes the exaltation of others. In the best sense of that idea. And here, Hebrews 13.1 has a very clear meaning of intensifying something that already exists. And for the potential church leader, it's assumed that you love the church, generally speaking. But for you in particular... This intensifying love means loving the church because you want to see God's people shepherded. You want to see them formed into Christ's likeness. This was Paul's prayer for the Galatians. He, he said he was eager to see Christ formed in them. There was a yearning, there was an eagerness, there was a love. Listen, a, a shepherd is not a shepherd just because he likes studying the Bible, although that's a must and that's a given. I know men who like studying the Bible, but they'd be lousy shepherds because they're not gifted for that. He's not a shepherd just because he likes, generally speaking, the institution of the church, that he enjoys reading ecclesiology, that he enjoys the idea of the church, he enjoys the church building, he enjoys the people as a whole. No, a shepherd loves to see Christ formed in every individual person. We should beware of shepherds who claim a generalized love for the church as an institution and yet show something very different for the individual's of the church. And this can manifest itself in a number of ways. Not wanting to get your hands dirty with individual shepherding of difficult situations. Listen, there is no perfect church and you would be amazed at the problems that exist even in Grace Bible Church because we're sinners in a sinful world. Not wanting to listen and find out where people are and what's happening with them. It doesn't mean we vote as a church. It just means to listen to your sheep. To listen to where they are. Or maybe wanting to make decisions which affect the whole church without having a solid biblical philosophy of ministry to back up that decision. 
a bunch of guys with gray hair getting together in the room doesn't mean it's going to be a godly decision. There has to be a biblical backing. Or perhaps this generalized love for the church of an institution can manifest itself in preferring certain individuals in the church over all others, even to the detriment of others. That's not okay either. Shepherds who are shepherding now, and I put myself in this category, should beware of a growing coldness, a disdain for the sheep. And this can happen by so many ways, so many means. It's a slippery and sly trick of Satan to harm a church through shepherds that have become indifferent, who have stopped loving the sheep, who have stopped having that affection and that joy with them. Instead, there should be concern, there should be a loving burden that the shepherd senses in his heart, the same burden that Jesus felt. I think Mark 6 is very instructive to us. You don't have to turn there, but Mark 6 records that Jesus and his disciples took a boat to get across the Sea of Galilee, specifically to get away from everyone else, to be refreshed for a time. But apparently going over the Sea of Galilee wasn't that fast that day because thousands of people ran on foot and beat them to their destination. Instead of saying, guys, start rowing the other way. They haven't seen this yet. Go, go, go. Mark 6.34 says, When he went ashore, this is Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you know how he worked out that compassion And he began to teach them many things. That's how you love the body, by imparting to them the truth of the word of God. And so how does the shepherd intensify his love for the sheep? Here's how you do it. First of all, through praying for them. Through praying for them. Pray that your shepherds are men of prayer. Praying individually as much as is possible. Yeah, it's easy to say, dear God, bless our church, amen. I don't think that's quite as meaningful as praying for individuals in our church. This is a heart tenderizer and certainly one of the chief duties of the shepherds. Paul said in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. What does that mean? It means that he is sifting in his mind all of these memories, all these details, all of these little minute thoughts about the individual members of the church at Philippi. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so the shepherd intensifies his love for the sheep through praying for them. He also intensifies his love for the sheep by feeling the weight of the ministry. By feeling the weight of the ministry. Second Corinthians reveals the Apostle Paul's heart as a shepherd and also serves as a defense of his ministry In chapter 2, verse 17, he explains the weight of his ministry. He and his ministry partners are, quote, men of sincerity, commissioned by God, speaking in Christ in the sight of God. That's weighty stuff. That is the stuff of gravitas, of heaviness. In fact, Paul expressed his love for the church as a deep desire to see her purified in Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Feeling the weight of the ministry. The shepherd intensifies his love for the sheep also by doing the most loving thing possible. That is imparting the word of God. By doing the most loving thing possible, imparting the word of God. Three times. 
Jesus told Peter in John 21 that if he loved Christ, then feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Impart to them the very words of Christ. The shepherd who becomes separated from imparting the word of God is in danger of losing love for the sheep because that's the primary way we love the sheep. Now, obviously, not every shepherd has the privilege to do what I do every week, spending the majority of the time like I do. I spend all week with my best friends, men like Moses and Paul and Peter and Luke and other authors of Scripture, and then telling you what I've learned. And I have that great privilege. But at some level, every single shepherd must be involved in imparting the Word of God, even if it's one-on-one. That's what we do. Well, that's love for the brothers, for the church. But what about love for those who are lost or those that maybe we don't know as well. Look at verse 2. Intensifying your love, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The preacher of Hebrews here makes a very obvious reference to Abraham and the time that he fed the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, and two of his angels before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He uses this illustration, great illustration to write to Jewish Christians. They get that immediately. But in the immediate context here of the ancient Near East, what was a stranger? A stranger, generally speaking, was a traveler. It was somebody who was coming through the city or the town in need of lodging. And the, the, the idea here is, Have the attitude that anybody to whom you show love might be an angel. That'll kind of check your heart, won't it, every time. What a gospel opportunity. What a chance to proclaim Christ, to feed and house a family that's coming through your town, even taking them with you to your church gathering, if possible. This is showing a heart for the lost, a heart for those who don't know Christ, a heart for those who haven't fully engaged and become part of the church of Jesus Christ. In a broader sense, though, in the bigger umbrella sense, the idea of hospitality, it it can't be restricted to the use of your home to entertain, although that's a legitimate application. That's not what hospitality is. In the broader sense, it simply means to be a friend to strangers. That's all it means, to be a friend to strangers. There's a burden, there's a desire to see the lost saved, to befriend the unbeliever, to minister the gospel to him over time. And I would say that the shepherd with no care or concern for the church should beware and the shepherd with no care or concern for those outside the church should check his heart. He needs to intensify that love as well. And listen, this isn't just a social directive of some sort to generally speaking be nice to those outside the church. No, there's a purpose to it. The purpose is there's this desire to to inculcate someone into the church, to introduce them to Christ through the gospel and to see them come to function as a full brother or sister in the Lord. And I think I can safely say among your elders here, there are elders have a heart for the stranger, a heart for the lost. Every week before this service, we gather together and we pray, and I think a week never goes by that we don't pray for one or two hearing the gospel today, that we want to love them, that the Lord would graciously save them. Shepherds should intensify their love for the church and for those outside the church still. By the way, sometimes this love for the church means purifying the bride, means purifying the church, it means calling sin, sin, and insisting on obedience. See also the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, whose leadership refused to deal with sexual sin in their midst, and and Christ 
uh, gave a condemnation to the leadership. So how can you pray for your leaders and how can you aspire to this sort of leadership? Pray for your elders, pray for your pastors, that our love for the church would be genuine, would be heartfelt, would be tender. This would be our driving passion to give Christ glory and honor. There is no place in the church for leaders who love power. There's no place for that. There are plenty of places for servant leaders who love Christ's bride. We're just the chief servants, that's all. Well, there's a second way to prepare for shepherding. We'll call this one improve your compassion. Improve your compassion. Verse 3. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. There's a specific situation to which this is referring, but it also has a broader application as well. The specific situation refers to Christians who are in prison for their stand for Christ. This was a common enough occurrence that the preacher of Hebrews reminds the other Christians to be mindful of the one that's suffering. And this is a good reminder for us that never, ever should the leadership of the church have this blasé attitude toward other believers who are suffering for their faith. I think this is worse than the American church because we're, we're sheltered from that. It should be the leadership, though, setting the example to remember those who suffer, to call out to God on their behalf. But there's a broader application as well that I think is useful for us, and that is that the shepherds of the church are, are to be willing to deal with people in any station of life. Shepherds should set the example of the exhortation given in James 2. Listen carefully to this. James 2, 1 through 4 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In our church, we have such a broad variety of people. We have some who have spent a dozen years beyond high school getting further education. We have, some of you have spent zero years beyond high school getting further education. We have some who make generous incomes on a weekly basis. We have others who pray every day for God to provide basic needs. We have some who seem to skate through life with very few difficulties and others who are a magnet for trials and pain. I I get emails from some of you. Well, here's my suffering for the week. I have a third form of cancer now. It's like you're a magnet. And others like... Well, I pray for everyone, but I've never really had anything bad happen to me. We have some who have never had a major health difficulty and others who can't remember what it's like to be healthy. But listen, whatever distinctions the world has made, we're one in Christ. We're brothers. We're sisters. We're equally seated with gratitude at the foot of the cross. We're equally standing in awe before the throne of God Almighty. We must remember that. And so shepherds ought to be aware of seeing some people as intrinsically more important than others. Now, certainly we may spend more time on some than others. There's two reasons for this. You spend more time on those who are teachable and you spend more time on those who are rebellious. But Isaiah 53, 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
This is the basis for a compassionate heart for the body of Christ. This is like Paul greeted the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 2. He said, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So how can you improve your compassion? Let me give you a really simple way to do this. Intentionally get to know people in the church who are the least like you. And reach out to those that you think, you know, in a normal setting, I probably would have passed you right by on the street, but you know what we have in common? The cross. And we're equal at the cross. And I'd like to get to know you. I'd like to get to know how different you were raised than I was. I'd like to get to know your background. How important is that? By the way, the whole idea of racism just goes away in the church. Because in the church, we're all equal at the foot of the cross and we, we rejoice in that. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Intensify your love. Improve your compassion. Let me give you a third way to prepare to shepherd. Bolster your ecclesiology. Bolster your ecclesiology. I was told in seminary, don't use big words. I think you're smart enough to figure that out. Ecclesiology, what is that? It is the study of the church. Bolster your study of the church. Bolster your ecclesiology. Verse 3 again. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Since you also are in the body. Now again, we see more clearly that those in prison specifically are Christians since you also are in the body. What does this mean? It means that you are to have a clear, clear, clear understanding of the very high view of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the high view that Scripture teaches and promotes. It means that when persecution is happening to others, you're not caught defending the unrighteous. Remember the righteous. Remember the Christian. As pastors in Alberta Canada have been imprisoned and charged with crimes for still meeting with their churches. I've been stunned at the number of professing believers who have defended the government, who have defended the government's actions, who have blamed the pastors for not putting man's law above God's law. Can you possibly imagine what it was like and what it is like right now to be in the shoes of James Coates or Tim Stevens? All they want to do is shepherd shepherd God's people. But when it was deemed illegal for the church to meet, they determined to follow Christ at at all costs. Now listen carefully. Why were they able to do this? Because their ecclesiology was already formed. It was already concrete. It was already strong. It was already well-grounded. They weren't trying to figure it out. They weren't trying to say, gee, should we follow the government or should we follow Christ? I don't know. It was already a foregone conclusion. We follow Christ. And when the government says it's illegal to follow Christ, we say we're following Christ. And to help you bolster your ecclesiology, to elevate your view of the church, I want to camp on this for the rest of our time. I just want to consider a few verses earlier in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, warns to not let defiling influences penetrate the church, to not allow what verse 15 calls a root of bitterness to come in and cause trouble, defiling many. Uh, the root of bitterness in Hebrews 12, 15, I think is often preached as an individual heart attitude of anger or bitterness. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about you personally dealing with the heart of bitterness. 
The preacher of Hebrews is citing Deuteronomy 29, 18, quote, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What is the root of bitterness? It is unchecked sinfulness in the body of Christ. It's a poison. Don't let the church be touched by the immoral. Don't let it be touched by the unholy. According to verse 16. And what's the reason? Look with me at chapter 12, verse 18. Hebrews 12, 18. Here's the reason. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What is this? This is a picture of God at Mount Sinai in his blazing, terrifying glory. Verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then all of a sudden, There's this contrast to the terrifying spectacle of holy God who is separated from his people because he is holy and we're unholy. And now the picture changes to this welcoming, this idea of hospitality, to awe and to wonder because we don't come to Mount Sinai to be terrified under the law, which is good, but not as good as the new covenant. Not to Mount Sinai do we come, but to Mount Zion to the city of our God. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The heavenly Jerusalem is exactly what it says, a city that's currently in heaven. Some attempt to spiritualize this and to simply be in the church, but that falls flat. It's unconvincing, although that's a common interpretation. We know the heavenly Jerusalem is a real city. Hebrews 11, verse 10 says, Abraham was looking forward to this city. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is not the bride of Christ the church. The city is prepared as a bride, like a bride, not the bride. And in fact, just to make certain we get that this is a real city, Revelation 21 gives the measurements and the materials and the makeup of the actual real city. The city which will descend from heaven to become the capital city of new earth forever and ever. But look with me at the focal point of the preacher's reason for bringing up the new Jerusalem, the place where you already belong. Verse 23, what's his focal point? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Are you getting this picture? That you have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, to the countless angels. You've come to God. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of your salvation through shed blood. But look who you are with. The assembly, the ecclesia, the gathered people of God. The assembly of the firstborn, that is Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the first one to die and rise again to physical perfection. 
to those who are, look at this phrase, enrolled in heaven. It literally means your name is written down there. To the ones called the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What is this? This is the language of privilege. This is the language of royalty. This is the language of distinction. This is the language of honor. This is the language of favor. That every single member of the church of Jesus Christ, according to Luke 15.10, has been caused for God to rejoice before the angels. That every single member of the church of Jesus Christ is the lost sheep that was found in Luke 15. Every single member of the church of Jesus Christ is the lost coin that was found in Luke 15. And every single member of the church of Jesus Christ is the lost son who has come home to his father in Luke 15. And so knowing all of this, having your ecclesiology bolstered, look at our right response. Verse 28 of chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable what? Worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Can I say this? Shepherds who lack a proper awe at the creation of Christ's church will lack in their worship. They'll lack in their reverence. They'll lack in their awe for God himself. You cannot say I have a high view of God and a mediocre view of the church. It must be a high view of both. How should we be? We should be like the groom of Song of Solomon 4 who just gazes at his wife's form and extols her virtues and delights. We're to gaze at the bride of Christ the worshipers that God has made to honor Christ for all of eternity. And it ought to be with reverence and awe and wonder that God would take such wretched, depraved sinners and radically transform them into the very children of God, holy as God is holy, righteous like He is righteous, completely justified before God, completely renewed in our spirit before God, and completely transformed in a way, listen, that can never be undone. Ever. If you're a shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ or you aspire to that, the church should be a source of awe, a source of wonder aimed toward God and lived out in loving and careful, obedient service to the bride of Christ. Shepherds, you should be terrified to mislead the bride because Christ is jealous for his bride. So intensify your love, improve your compassion, Bolster your ecclesiology. And next time we'll do the other three preparations for shepherding we get from this text in Hebrews 13. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, thank you for this time that we've had. Thank you for the, the word of God, which is so abundantly clear. And Lord, we're just uh, digging trenches and laying down foundations here. We pray that our proper understanding of leadership in the church would bear great fruit in the years to come. We pray that even now, you are moving in the hearts of, of men within our own body. You're moving in the hearts of men who are perhaps watching online in other locations. And that you would move in their hearts, Lord, that they would aspire to the office of overseer. And that they would begin to prepare. And they would begin to take seriously the weightiness and the gravitas with which we look at the church of Jesus Christ. Help us to love the church as shepherds and help those who are members of the church to love their shepherds and to have that beautiful synergy together. 
Lord, I pray for a man or a woman listening to this right now who perhaps really isn't even clear what we're talking about because they have not yet come to faith in Christ. For them, the issue is not shepherding or leadership. For them, the issue is just being part of the church in the first place. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would move even now to save the lost, to save those who need to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Help them, Lord, to see that their sins cannot be forgiven unless they repent. Help them to see that their sins can never be repaid through an eternity of judgment unless Christ becomes the payment for that sin on their behalf. And I pray that this would be the day that they enter into that glorious, glorious body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let this be the day we pray in Christ's name. Amen.